What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today is Layla K. Fagali. Layla is a cultural worker and folk herbalist who lives between her ancestral village in Lebanon and in California, where she was raised. Fagali's work is about restoring relationships to earth-based ancestral wisdom as an avenue towards eco-cultural stewardship, healing, and liberation. Fagali's methods emphasize plants of place and lineage. Her company, River Rose Remembrance, features a line of ancestral medicine, education, and other culturally rooted offerings. It also hosts the Ancestral Hub, an online space for the cross-pollination of ancestral knowledge across diasporic and home communities from Southwest Asia and North Africa. Her book that we are discussing today is The Land in Our Bones, Ancestral Herbalism and Healing Cultures from Syria to the Sinai. Thank you, Layla, for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. You say in the in the introduction of the book that this is about the Canaan. Um, what region of the world is that, and what are your connections to it? Canaan is what we currently call the Levant. Um, I choose to use the the ancient word Canaan for a bunch of reasons I go into in detail in the book, but um, as more of a reclamation of the pluralism, the indigeneity. Um, the borderless nature of the region. But the Levant technically includes what is now Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, and the Sinai, which is kind of the northern, the bridge between Egypt and um, and Palestine, basically. Okay. And um, the, your bio says that you travel between your ancestral village in Lebanon and California. What it, where is your ancestral, where and what is your ancestral village in Lebanon? And why did your family leave? It's a great question. Um, my village, well, my mother is from the south of Lebanon. My father is from the north. And um, I live in my father's village while I'm there. Um, and, you know, my family left in a wave of migration that a lot of our region experienced during that time. It was, uh, there was a civil war in Lebanon from the years 1975 into the early 90s. Um, my mother's family immigrated kind of in the beginning, kind of rising tensions of that kind of preceded the official civil war. And my father actually left, um, you know, he he left temporarily, what was supposed to be a temporary leave to complete part of his education, but because of the war was not really able to come back. And so, you know, they left because of, of war um, and just all the layers of uh, instability that it, it creates. Yeah, we're going to talk about that um, a little bit more in a second. Talk about the house she grew up in, uh, in in the U.S. and and what your family was like and the ways in which your culture was maintained in your home. I grew up, but both of my uh, parents, you know, are pretty deeply rooted in the village cultures of Lebanon. Um, they're not particularly conservative, thankfully, <laughs> but they are kind of traditional. 
Um, so I, and when I, you know, I grew up, I'm, I'm one of the older siblings in my family. So my parents were still very immersed in, you know, they were not assimilated, really. They were very, very much still living uh, very Lebanese lives. Our house was full of immigrants. My mom is an incredible cook. She was known in the community for her uh, traditional food and her traditional desserts. Um, there were, you know, families from Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, where the kids I grew up with in my private spheres um, so much of the time. Um, I grew up in the LA area. So it was a pretty, you know, diverse area, even though we were in the suburbs. Um, you know, lots of immigrant families, lots of immigrant families from all over the place. So there was definitely, you know, private life was different than school life. <laughs> for sure, but um, there was definitely a bit of a reconciling the American uh, social norms and, um, you know, Lebanese parents and their, you know, unquestioned kind of cultural expectations. So, you know, that that was a bit of a, of a battle for the early parts of my childhood. But, you know, we, we, we've tried to find our rhythm. I was going to ask you about this in a little bit, but because we're talking about family, my listeners know that I love to talk about grandmothers and my culture, we call them grannies. Oh. Talk to us about your teta. Oh, <laughs> well, I love this question. And, mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure how much of my book you got to read, but I also love talking about my grandmothers. Um, well, both of my tetas had pretty influential roles in my, in my life. Uh, even though neither of them actually lived nearby uh, long-term. Um, but because of the war, my paternal grandmother did come at times for extended periods and stayed with us in our home. And my other, my maternal grandmother, Tita Rene, who I do talk about quite a bit in the book, um, she lived in Florida. So we, I would go visit her. We would go visit her maybe once a year she would come visit us sometimes, but um, she just had, her house was like a time capsule into this small village in Lebanon. It smelled like za'atar, it smelled like herbs. I, I would go home from her house and my whole suitcase would smell like, like plants, like aromatic plants. Um, she was an avid gardener, so she always was feeding us from her garden and she was just really fierce honestly <laughs> she um insisted on um you know maintaining a culture of kind of just earth-based collectivism i think um even in a place that did not really subscribe to that i remember that she used to there was this like wholesale um grocery store that she used to like to go get her vegetables and stuff from and um i remember walking in there with her and she never really spoke that much english even though she lived in the u.s for over 30 years um i remember going there with her and you know the white guy who owned the place would just be rolling his eyes i could tell he was he was not a fan of my grandmother's but like the young black men who worked there were were all about her and just knew who she was started moving boxes, doing all the things to just, um, you know, accommodate her kind of like she was their grandmother. 
And I was, you know, very endeared by it. And then she would just bring rosemary from her garden. And, you know, rosemary doesn't grow easily in Florida. And she would basically barter. She would barter and he would accept it because, you know, rosemary is hard to find there, <laughs> fresh rosemary. So um, she had this whole kind of ecosystem that she just preserved of, um, you know, her own village ways, even in the diaspora. And uh, it really it left an imprint on me. It left a big imprint on me. That's actually a really good segue to my next question because you do spend a, quite a bit of time at the beginning of the book talking about connection to ancestors and that connection really impacting you. Um, you also talk about the diaspora as the land of in-between and how your understanding of that has impacted your view of the world, your identity, and the purpose of your life. And um, hoping you could expand upon that before we start to talk about some other stuff. Yeah, you know, I think that probably maybe different folks from different diasporas can relate to this, but I think especially being first generation and really feeling the ways that my reality was um, not quite the same as my parents and the ways that we actively had to reconcile that. And honestly, how violent that felt so often. I mean, violent because nobody really knew how to deal with it and nobody really signed up for it knowingly. Um, I think that, you know, it, you know, and being from a, a marginal community that there's not, there's not like a huge Arab community in the US. Um, you know, I was, I, I was always kind of feeling a little bit outside of myself everywhere and just a little bit, a height, just I had a heightened awareness of the ways that my identity was neither here nor there. Um, and so I think it, it really propelled me to grapple more deeply with like, well, then what is true? You know, where, where do I stand? Um, how do I, you know, fit on this earth? Um, what are the things that are true for me? Where, what are the ways that, um, I, I place myself in the worlds that I exist in and all the different worlds I exist in. And I think for me, you know, also because being Lebanese is quite complex, um, especially while I was growing up and my parents weren't really talking about the politics of what was going on, but you know, civil war is a pretty deep thing. It ruptures so much um, internally. They, it creates such fragmented identity, even I think within the cultural context of, of Lebanon, for example. And so I think I, I, I found myself asking the elders or wondering about um, the ancestors as a way to understand what has been steady, what has been true for a really long time, what are the patterns that are, you know, that remain through the test of time and all the ruptures um, of empire, of displacement, of all the the different things, and um, you know, I I felt like I could only really access that through reaching a little deeper and a little bit longer. 
You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Leila Fagali about her book, The Land in Our Bones, Plancestral Herbalism and Healing Cultures from Syria to the Sinai. All right. I, I think we should start now defining some terms. Um, I've said plancestral um, mm-hmm. a couple times now. Mm-hmm. Talk to my folks about what you mean by that term. Um, I use the word plancestral, which... Um, you know, our plants are our ancestors. Um, They have been species existing on this earth for longer than humans and all of our cultures worldwide, all of our peoples, our livelihoods right now, you know, even right now from the beginning of time um, have relied on them to survive. They're a source of culture. They're a source of just mm, basic livelihood in every kind of way. They're the oxygen we breathe, they're the food we eat, they're the medicine that we consume to to heal ourselves. Um, Even if we take allopathic medicines, they still come from plants. Um, You know, they are are like the foundation of our existence as a species in so many ways. And I use that language because I think that, um, you know, the global north paradigms of relating to uh, plants, even even in the cultures of herbalism and all of that, um, we tend to just um, we we tend to be have an extractive relationship to everything. And I, I want to use language that uh, kind of restores the integrity of what these relationships actually are and what they actually you know what they actually mean and also the possibilities within them because um, you know, it's really, they're tied to our sovereignty. They're tied to our self-determination. They're tied to our means of just being alive and existing on this planet. And that has been a source of power for our ancestors for thousands of years. And um, so I also use the word ancestors specifically to refer to our ancestral plants. Um, which are the plants that, you know, we have evolved because of and alongside for generation after generation after generation. And I believe that they carry um, memory, they carry stories, they carry that power, and they kind of activate it inside of us too when we steward that relationship um, with, with intention and care. You said um, something that harkened me to another page in your book that that we, I'm guessing you mean humans, have an extractive relationship with things, um, though. Um, depends on 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 country and culture uh, about how uh, how much of an extractor you are. I mean, you talk about you know the da- the damage of colonialism also in the book, but you said something in I can't remember which chapter it it was, but that when you're like growing these plants, you know, for, for medicine or healing, that they're one of the first instincts tends to be to harvest them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for utilization, can you talk about other ways in which we can and should be engaging with plants and their medicine? Yeah. Yeah. I did. I talked about that. I think early in the book, just to um, sort of, you know, part of my intention with this book is to, invite a different paradigm of relating, particularly for folks 
who live in um, colonized or um, Western societies where that has become the norm. You know, people want to grow a plant and they want to grow it for their own um, purposes. And it's not wrong. You know, we're in relationships where, you know, also consuming plants and working with them for medicine is part of that relationship, you know. But I do think that the extractive tendencies, um, you know, the consumer tendencies really um, are, are pretty strong. And so I, my, my ways of, um, that I would like to invite and that I try to cultivate are more relationship-based, um, you know, and just process-based a little bit, you know. And so, yes, I still harvest plants. But um, what what is the just how present can I be in the actual um, the actual process of of every single part of the process of of planting a seed of of watching the plant grow of responding to the plant's needs of um, harvesting the plant of preparing the medicine and I think people who grow their own plants actually learn this naturally i think part and part of what i kind of get at in the book is that restoring our relationship with land actually naturally starts to um kind of reprogram us into uh, a a reciprocity a type of reciprocity and relationality because um, you have to be in a responsive relationship to plants in order to grow them well um if you're if you're you know yeah i mean i guess that you don't really have to, to be honest. I think of like, you know, industrial farming and stuff. And I, I guess there's there's all kinds of ways around that. But, you know, for, for um, small scale stewards, um, that naturally starts to recalibrate. And I do believe that that, trans- that that transforms the way that we relate in culture and in community more broadly. Um, and I think that's why it's important. So for me, I, position in this book that restoring relationship with land restores our fundamental power and also recalibrates and kind of transforms the paradigm of how we relate away from, you know, the colonial capitalist kind of extractive tendencies and back towards um, a life affirming kind of way, or it can. Um, And so I think, I think intention, presence, um, and and collective you know collaborative care being a part of of that practice is uh it changes it changes the way that that it moves you and that it moves through you and from you you also talk about the importance of or the impact um i'll let you phrase it the way you want to about being connected um, to not just plants, because you also talk about, you know, the utilization of plants as food and, and food um, from, you know, where you are from, say that right. I, ha- I have words, I can use them. <laughs> you talk about the importance of um, utilization of plants and food from um, from the, wherever we sit, you know, in, in our diaspora. Can, can mm-hmm. you say why that's important? And then part two of that question that I really thought about when I got to the food section was for like, for like my folks, 
a lot mm-hmm. of us, I'm, I'm black, um, mm-hmm. a lot of us have no idea where we come from in terms mm-hmm. of where on the continent, right? And the continent's massive. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you are in the continent, um, different foods, different plants, what do you suggest for folks that are yearning for that kind of connection but aren't exactly sure what part of the world to connect to? Mm, yeah, I love that. Well, I mean, what's uh, honestly you know, the Black diaspora has been such a profound kind of like influential just voice in my own process in so many ways. I mean, I grew up, you know, in North America and um, I was politicized under the wings of, of, of Black folks, really. And I feel like the Black diaspora is, you know, a prime example of the way that um, connections to homeland have actually persisted even in um, diasporic cultures and foods. And, you know, it does make me think, I, I don't know if you watch High on the, the Hog, um, Stephen Satterfield's um, series on Netflix, but he does a really amazing job at just showing how um, soul food and just various, various cuisines across the, the Black diaspora, you know, continue to retain really explicit threads to places all across the continent and mostly West Africa. Um, and so I feel like that, you know, that even if you're connecting to the foods of your diasporic culture, it is still a connection to ancestors and home and that home evolves. So part of this connecting back to the ancestors for me, it's you know, sometimes people say to me, well, why are we romanticizing the past instead of moving towards the future? But actually, I see it, I don't see it that way. I don't see it as a romanticization of the past, or even an attachment to the past. It's more about an anchoring in, um, in the in the origin in order to evolve forward. And I do think that part of that is us not stopping in time but actually, you know, knowing where we come from in order to continue and um, co-create with the life where we are. And so what I see happen sometimes in, you know, the, the diaspora of folks from, from my part, like I'll say the Arabized diaspora, um, is that, you know, especially because so many people leave in conditions of war and extreme violence, um, things can kind of feel like they stop in time and there can be this deep resistance to being diaspora at all. There can be deep resistance and even resentment about being where we are. And what it plays out as is just not ever fully embodying yourself where you are, just like kind of being in between worlds forever. And I think that it is both... Um, destructive on just a personal, you know, just spiritual well-being level. But I also think it's actually reproduces colonial dynamics, possibly unintentionally. Um, Because one thing I do know is that regardless of where we land on the earth, we are a species that is in um, foundational relationship to the elements that make life on this earth, AKA to land. And um, us 
being in touch and actually cultivating and giving towards the land where we live recalibrates the nature of those relationships. So we have a responsibility to the land where we live and especially, and this might be a controversial thing to say, but I would say, especially if, um, if we live on unceded lands and we were not invited, um, I think ignoring the land where we live, which also means ignoring the people of those lands, um, it ends up reproducing um, everything but liberation. And I think that when we find ways to arrive in a way that stewards that relationship and that connects with the plants of place, it actually reconnects us to um, the power in our own ancestral relationships and our own sovereign relationships to land in our own bones and in our own blood, while also helping to restore, um, you know, hopefully the possibilities of land back where we live. So I talk a bit in the in that chapter about, you know, my own process of also just replanting native plants, you know, literally um, helping to restore the ecologies in my diasporic home, um, which have been ravaged by colonialism in every kind of way, you know? I mean, this country is the product of, of genocide and enslavement. Um, so uh, how do we give back to the land and reconnect in ways that are life affirming and that are connective because I think the more connected we are to the life anywhere we live, the more that we are able to um, just stand in a type of steadfastness and integrity to life affirming liberatory worlds. I love all of that. And yeah, this country was not the only country, but certainly the dominant one I, I was referring to when I talked about uh, extractors. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and feel free to say all kinds of controversial things on this show. This is law and disorder. So <laughs> that's, that's sort of what we do uh, around these parts. Um, all right, I'm clocking time. I have like so many more questions for you. Um, I think I'm going to move on to talking about some, um, what you call the fundamental understandings of this work. Mm -hmm. Um, so the first one you have is our bodies are an archive. Our bodies are the earth. I feel like you touched on that mm -hmm. a little bit, uh, in the last, uh, answer. Um, Talk about stories and their places carry keys. Mm. Yes, I feel like um, some of this is, uh, yeah, this is part of why I go into a lot of the stories of my own grandmothers, but I also go into older stories like our cosmologies. And um, I think that the stories that our ancestors have left for us, but also the stories that we live and we retell each other, um, they, they carry patterns, they carry signals, they carry um, anecdotes that allow us to learn and allow us to um, just like animate the relationship of reality and life that we live in and also to imagine, um, you know, other possibilities forward and to learn from mistakes that have already been made. Um, and I, you know, a lot of 
my process and and what I talk about in the book, um, you know, it is there is a lot of you know science in some sense because I do recount a lot of the just the the function of the plants, their medicinal actions, and their tried and tested, um, you know, just possibilities for our well being. But there is also um, it's also just like about getting into a less linear kind of subverting some of the colonial paradigms in which we've been taught to know and reclaiming the sovereignty of the knowledge in our own bodies and in our own communities and that get built and paved through our actualized relationships and our generational knowledge. And a lot of that lives in our stories. Okay, we're going to do one more of these, and I think I want to do the, um, because we haven't talked about remembrance, which is another mm -hmm. term you use a lot, and one of the fundamentals is remembrance is return. Say more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I talk about the concept of remembrance in the book as both um, kind of like, you know, you remember something that you know, returning to like the essence of something you have known before returning back to your own essence, but also as remembrance, as in, um, you know, recreating or recollecting or um, creating cohesion from dismembered, fragmented parts, um, things that have been dismembered on purpose, things that have been dismembered because of displacement and all the different layers. Um, and fundamentally, for me, remembrance is about sovereignty and it's about restoring and reclaiming um, just an anchorage in the axis of, um, of like unwavering truths that determine and make possible life on this planet and that we have been in relationship to for thousands and thousands of years, things that have been intentionally disrupted by colonialism and imperialism. And remembrance is really about returning to the source of our own power and of our sovereignty. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Leila Fagali about her book, The Land in Our Bones, Plancestral Herbalism and Healing Cultures from Syria to the Sinai. All right. I do want to get into, because one of the other things your book does is you actually give us the name of some plants and flowers and mm -hmm. um, foods and what they can be used for. But before we go there, um, selfishly, my daughter and I um, both have for years worn the evil eye. Um, <laughs> on our, you know, either our ankles or our wrists, it's hanging on my, it's been hung on my mother's door. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it hangs on my door. Um, and so when I saw that section, I was like, Ooh, and so I wonder if you could, um, talk about, um, talk about the, the evil eye and that connection to healing or ridding ourselves of energies that are not serving us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, there, a lot of this book, I actually go into, you know, some of our folkloric um, traditions yes. and our beliefs because, and I also talk about like Abrahamic traditions, which some people might find kind of weird, but my whole thing is that I want to reconnect to 
um, kind of like earth-based ways of relating and existing and paradigms of, of just existing in the world. And um, I the ability to see or to know with all of our senses and to perceive through our bodies and our, um, our own vessels is such a characteristic part of what I experienced in especially the women in my family. Um, and not in some kind of, you know, formalized sort of structured way. It's just how they are. It's just how they move in the world. And I wanted to just, um, I wanted to, to really acknowledge that for what it is and for what a massive part of our um, kind of protective uh, structure culturally it has been and the eye the you know the eye has been co-opted in so many ways mm -hmm. and you know it's been so commercialized in so many ways in recent years but it's also one of those symbols that has traveled through i mean and it hasn't just traveled i also have heard um you know i have heard you know ifa practitioners from yoruba mm -hmm. traditions in nigeria mm -hmm. talk about the evil eye you know that's right and that's mexican right. curanderas and you know this is like old world it's an old world knowing it's it's rooted in something um that our ancestors universally those who lived land-based earth-based um, practices uh, understood the power inside and so um, i wanted to connect that to just the way that our matriarchs are right now, which is part of kind of what we were we were talking about before, which is that it doesn't stop in time. It's that these ancient threads actually continue through the stories that we are living every day. And, um, you know, I feel like Palestine is a part of that right now too, honestly. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so I, I think my hope is that that will come through, that these are not just um, reflections of the past, they're reflections of a thread that the earth kind of weaves through us and continues to evolve, you know, from us, um, whether we're in diaspora or in homeland. But how do we maintain kind of the integrity of the, the sovereignty within our relationship to the earth that allows that thread to continue instead of be severed? Okay, we have just a little under 10 minutes, and so I just want to run through two or three um, of the plants, foods in the book, and what they can be used for. And this is where, as I told you before we started re uh, recording, that I was probably going to um, really mess up some pronunciations, so do <laughs> not be good. shy about <laughs> correcting me. Um, okay. <laughs> purslane? Purslane, yes. Well, purslane is like a spring. Well, it's, it actually grows. People it grows as a weed in a lot of people's garden beds over here, uh, anywhere really, all 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 over the world, probably. Um, it's a very, um, it's an almost succulent like, you know, little round leaf that has a a mildly tangy but but very mild uh, flavor, and it's it's a very cleansing plant. Um, you know, mineral rich, one of those kinds of just, it's full of omega threes and um, we use it a lot in salads. But you know, and I had I, a curandera teacher in Mexico that um, once prepared it uh, as a soup and it was so delicious. Mm. T t I'm really gonna mess this one up. Tayun? 
Oh, Taeyun. No, you didn't mess up too bad. You didn't do too bad. Check you out. (laughs) 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 Uh, Taeyun is a a very, um, it's a very common, uh, it really grows like a quote unquote weed. It's just grows in disturbed land all over, um, you know, Lebanon, parts of Palestine, Syria. I mean, all of our region really. And um, it's a really sticky aromatic plant that has so many uses, but really I, I focus on Tayun. So I, I liked, I chose to focus on some of these really common and also kind of um, missed plants that just are in massive abundance in the environment to kind of reclaim the medicine that's just really accessible and already around us. But Tayun is one of my favorites. Um, and it's, it's a plant that's most known for its ability to um, quickly heal wounds, um, stop bleeding, and, um, you know, mitigate infection of open wounds. All right, last one, Za'atar. Za'atar. Oh, well, Za'atar is probably our most famous plant around. And um, for folks, you know, Bay Area folks, if you haven't been tadims and eaten her manaish yet you really should because then you will mm. just get to embody zata to yourself um it's um it's a common plant and it's also a spice blend uh that we eat it's one of our cultural staples um it's a type of oregano or thyme there's different different plants we call zata they're usually versions of um, oregano or thyme and our zata blend um mixes them with with sumac sesame and salt and uh we um, with olive oil it's delicious it's also really good for your brain and it's just a general tonic for your body for your immune system your respiratory system really everything Layla, we have been seeing a reemergence, really, um, across cultures, across diaspora, um, of people reclaiming these ancestral practices and traditions. Why do you think that is, and what hope does it give you inside of these these really, really trying times? Like for any of us that are connected to our mm-hmm. humanity or the work for a liberated world or social justice, like it's just very intense. How can um, these practices help? Well, I think that some part of us knows because it is the remembrance and a returning to the source because it is just the found. I mean, it is the material reality of our existence as humans is that we depend on the earth to survive and we're part of the earth. We're a part of the land. And I'd like to think that the part of people wanting to reclaim these connections and these relationships is anchored in that, you know, that part of us that knows and that refuses to, um, to uh, release our essence to just like the many colonizing forces that try to sever that. And I, I think my, and my hope is that in this book, what will be clear is that, you know, these are not just healing practices that we rely on for a moment to moment thing. But these are traditions that are built on and because of our ancestors' sovereign relationships to land and to each other. And they have been, you know, strong enough to somehow still exist in any form 
that we can reclaim and that um, my, my hope and my belief is that if we maintain clarity about how politicized these relationships to land are, you know, and how political it is to reclaim those sovereignties that um, it's part of a liberatory movement towards um, political liberation as much as it is self-determination and our ability to, you know, practice collective care in our communities um, based on what our, you know, our lineages have always known could, could just heal and restore and also nourish and sustain in every kind of way, whether it's guerrilla fighters who, you know, know the earth so well that they're able to defeat, you know, the largest army. I mean, you know, shout out to Palestine again, um, you know, or whether it's our grandmothers and their ability to sustain life and, um, and you know, care for us when they had only their hands and, and the land. Um, so, you know, and, you know, I mean, and our ability to care for each other is just an ongoing part of that legacy too. But I, I do believe that it's tied to our sovereignty or the possibilities of reclaiming that. And um, it's deeply political. Usually the last question I ask in, in my interviews is, is what is your hope for the book in the world? But I feel like you sort of just told us. So I will ask you why this book, why now? Well, I mean, I could not have known that this book about, you know, the region where my ancestors are from was going to come out right now while the people of Palestine are being genocided and both Palestine and Lebanon are being um, just, you know, bombed mercilessly. Um, I really could not have known that. And I often wonder how the book would have shifted, um, you know, if I, if I did. Um, but that is why I, I think we have to um, find the sources of truth that, that connect us back to our sovereignty and that will help us re-anchor in, in, in life-affirming cultures across this globe. And I don't, I don't claim to have all the answers, but what I know is that my searching has perpetually led me back to the earth and restoring that relationship as just the fundamental place to um, begin and um, reveal the pathways towards that sovereignty in every other kind of form and way that we're negotiating and kind of fighting to reclaim it. Um, so, and to restore, you know, to restore what has been disrupted along the way um, so that our, our futures can persist. You've been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today has been Layla K. Fagali. Layla is a cultural worker and folk herbalist who lives between her ancestral village in Lebanon and California, where she was raised. Fagali's work is about restoring relationships to earth-based ancestral wisdom as an avenue towards eco-cultural stewardship, healing, and liberation. Fagali's methods emphasize plants of place and lineage. Her company, River Rose Remembrance, features a line of ancestral medicine, education, and other 
other culturally rooted offerings. It also hosts the Ancestral Hub, an online space for the cross-pollination of ancestral knowledge across diasporic and home communities from Southwest Asia and North Africa. Her book that we have been discussing today is The Land in Our Bones, Plancestral Herbalism and Healing Cultures from Syria to the Sinai. Layla, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.